starts in three. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. Everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat. I'm J.C. Groves. And uh, man, I am excited about today's episode, week number two, with our guest, Jared Wilson. And today, you're going to get to hear an incredible message from him. But we have got some incredible announcements, some exciting things coming up in the life of the RFP. I think right off the bat, we need to start with introducing the two newest podcasts that are joining the RFP network. Nate, why don't you start us? That's right. I had lunch last week at Champies in Chattanooga, Tennessee oh, man. with John nice. Hollifield yeah. of the For Freedom podcast. And he is coming on board. They are excited. His co-host, James, is coming on as well. And these guys have been putting out some solid content. I've actually been interviewed on his podcast. I don't know no, we uh, haven't. what you no, guys are haven't. doing. There's probably an email somewhere out there where he's invited you and you haven't responded There's to it. There's not. <laughs> At least in my inbox. They just love you, Nathan. These, <laughs> these guys make a great addition to the RFP family, the RFP network team and we're glad to have him on board this next podcast that brian has the pleasure of introducing these guys have been on they were actually the first ones right Mm -hmm. yeah mike peters is going to be uh, laying down truth in spanish i I won't be able to understand the podcast (laughs) but because you know mike is man he's just so biblical and he speaks with such clarity And he directs everything always back to God's word, to the gospel. I know the podcast in Spanish. I have to say the RFP in Spanish because that's the only way I know to describe. My my only Spanish word is frijoles. So I'm not even going to attempt, but it's going to be an amazing podcast. We're stepping out in faith knowing that it's going to be good content because we, let's be honest, we're not going to have a clue what's said on there. I can pick up a few words here and there and I have listened to some of it. The actual name is the Religiosos Rehabilitados and that was terrible, but (laughs) that's as good as I can do. I, I, I believe I've got some Spanish heritage in my family somewhere, but that's well, awesome. signs have, of it are gone. Have you ever noticed country people always butcher every foreign language? You know, it's like, Kumasta, I stay more being gracious. You know, I mean, we just. <laughs> Don't they install bon you. <laughs> exactly. We just kill it. But they're going to do an amazing job. Man, we are fired up to have Four Freedom Podcast and the RFP in Espanol coming on the RFP family of podcasts. We've now got the Preacher's Kid Podcast. Church Split Podcast, RFWP, For Freedom, 26 Letters, and the RFP in Espanol. There it is. And it's pretty cool that JC, just like your family, the RFP family is growing. But mine's done growing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, ours is not. Yeah. Speaking of family, we've got two incredible meetups that are going to be happening this summer that we are excited to announce 
two places, South and Midwest. We are going to be meeting up with the RFP family on Friday, June the 4th in Statesboro, Georgia at the Connection Church. So this is our RFP fam meetup in the South in mm-hmm. Statesboro, Georgia. I know the pastor there, so I got us the building for free. We're good to go there. So if we you have are, connections. If you are, <laughs> good pun there. If you're anywhere close to Statesboro, Georgia, come and hang out with us on June the 4th. We'll be putting all the information out uh, on our social media platform, but that's the date there. And then, guys, the big one in the Midwest, coming up August 26th, 27th, and 28th. It's going to be in Bourbon, Missouri. Missouri. Bourbon, Missouri. Right there in the Midwest, and we got a camp up there, and uh, we're going to be putting out all of the information on our social media platforms and on our website. You can go to recoveringfundamentalist.org, click on the RFP meetups, and uh, you can see all of the information there. We'd love to meet you, RFP fam. Come and hang out with us, and uh, just to put a face with our social media and those that have been writing in and texting and calling, guys, I'm fired up about meeting the RFP fam. It's going to be pretty incredible. The summer's going to be great. Did you ever think last year when we started the podcast that the following summer we'd be getting to meet the listeners and just these people that have become a community to us? Never dreamed it. As a matter of fact, I never dreamed I would be in Missouri with you and Nathan. I never dreamed we'd be in a place called Bourbon, Missouri, of all places. That's a good place for recovering fundamentalists. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to take heat over that. Somebody's going to say we did that on purpose. <laughs> of course, that would be where Matt Dudley's from, so it's going to be a good hey, time. Hey, there are some towns up in Pennsylvania if we wanted to get real creative. for. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> <laughs> no Amish towns are on the list right oh, now. Oh, man, my wife would love it. It's <laughs> my wife is Amish for growing up. That maiden name was Yoder, so she can churn some butter. So I have six kids. All right, here we go. So that's going to be this summer. We are fired up about that. And uh, go to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Meetup tab. You can see all of the information there. Hey, we want to thank our sponsor, Free Life Soap, for sponsoring the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. You can go to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab. Use your promo code RFP. Get 20% off of your order. Guys, I think we've talked enough. Let's jump right into this message with Jared Wilson. You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In particular, verses 1 through 4. I want to spend some time um, in this first session looking at the reasons, the, um, the rationale for recovering the gospel recovery movement. Or, if you prefer, uh, the subtitle could be, Why Be Gospel-Centered? I want to sort of set a tone looking at Paul's orientation around the gospel as a template for us, a reminder to us that everything that we do must um, orbit around the gospel as well. So let's begin reading um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless our time together. 
Father, we do ask that by the power of your spirit, your word would be planted more deeply in our hearts, that we would be animated and energized and empowered by the grace you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his great name that we pray these things. Amen. Um, I, I am convinced that we have been for some time on the, the precipice of yet another gospel recovery movement. Um, we're looking down, I, I believe, my generation at least, is looking down the exhaust of a generation of church ministry that has tried to win the world in uh, worldly ways, I'm, I'm convinced. And along the way, in sort of pushing the gospel of Christ into a place of assumption, it has receded into the background. And in many cases, we have uh, endangered ourselves of losing the gospel of Jesus altogether. What we need, um, I believe, in, in the days and generations ahead, in fact, um, is, a, is a succession of ministers willing to, in the face of criticism and in the face of pragmatic ministerial wisdom, um, in the midst of a noisy culture, church growth strategies, religious technology, visionary dreaming, clever programming, attractional maneuvering, a willingness, a steadfast willingness to recommit to the centrality of the finished work of Christ proclaimed in the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been recovering, I believe, but we are on the verge, I'm afraid, of assuming, assuming the gospel, which is really only the ramp down to denying the gospel, which is why I say we need to recover the recovery of the gospel. What I'm noticing is that many even who identify with the so-called gospel-centered movement are really aligning or identifying with gospel-centered jargon um, without the sort of underlying rationale, the, the theology, if you will, of, of gospel centrality. And many appear to be lacking the biblical vocabulary, as it were. Many see gospel centrality as just another trend or just the latest um, cool modifier to throw onto every noun, right? So gospel-centered youth ministry and gospel-centered music and gospel-driven church. And when this happens without understanding, it is simply the preface to gospel confusion. Is everything the gospel is a, a question we might ask as this word and the adjectives get thrown around so much. In his little exposition on Philippians uh, Basics for Believers, Don Carson uh, writes this. He says, in a fair bit of Western evangelicalism, there is a worrying tendency to focus on the periphery. He says, my colleague, Dr. Paul Hybert, who springs from Mennonite stock and analyzes his heritage in a fashion that he himself would acknowledge as something of a simplistic caricature, but a useful one nonetheless. So he says, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments. The following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything. Assuming this sort of scheme for evangelicalism, one suspects, Carson writes, that large swaths of the movement are lodged in the second step, with some drifting towards the third. 
What is it in the Christian faith that excites you? Today, there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another, abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination, for or against it, economic justice, a certain style of worship, the defense of a particular Bible version, and whole countries have a full agenda of urgent peripheral demands, not for a moment, Am I suggesting, Carson says, that we should not think about such matters or throw our weight behind some of them, but when such matters devour most of our time and passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? End quote. I believe that we see this playing out now in many public conversations about the implications of God's justice in the world. The adjectiving of gospel is the first step to the conflating of gospel with law. And you see the precariousness when the question arises, well, what is a gospel issue? They say, this is a gospel issue. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that something is a gospel issue? We certainly see it when people say things like caring for orphans is the gospel or social justice is the gospel. That's a conflation of gospel with law, regardless of what you think about social justice or those things. Martin Luther says the conflation of gospel with law is the supreme art of the devil. The gospel has become a talisman of sorts, an abstraction around which we rally our troops and denounce others. You don't have the gospel. We're the ones who have the gospel because we do such and such. What do we need, brothers and sisters? We need to recover the recovery of the gospel. Why? Well, First of all, because we constantly need reminding. We constantly need reminding. We need reminding, first of all, that the gospel isn't anything we do, no matter how important it is or how commanded it is. The gospel is the news of what God has done in Christ. You can't do or be the gospel. The gospel is a newspaper headline. It's the announcement of what God has done in history through Christ's sinless life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. Here in this passage, Paul gives us essentially what we might call the nutshell of the gospel, right? Verse three, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's so much more that can be said. And of course, Paul goes on to say a whole lot more about all of these things. But this is the essence of the good news. Jesus Christ died for your sin and rose again, that if you repent and believe in him, you can have forgiveness and eternal life. That's the gospel. You notice that it's not advice. It's not instructions or commandments. To use the biblical or theological category, it's not law. It's news. And you and I need constant reminding of this because we have a tendency to forget what the gospel is. We need constant reminding because we have a tendency to forget what the gospel does. Here is Paul. He doesn't know he's writing chapters necessarily, but 15 chapters into the letter. Now, I would remind you, brothers, isn't that interesting? You and I do not wake up in gospel mode. We don't. Our, our heart is set on the flesh. It's, it's a, a mercy that the mercies are new every morning because we get up raring to sin. Or let's just put it this way. 
You and I wake up, or I'll, I'll just speak up me. I wake up thinking about my day. All my thoughts revolve around the phrase, my day. What's gonna happen in my day? What is my day going to look like? And immediately I'm set on myself. I'm oriented around myself. Um, you, you see the symptoms of this and just how your morning goes or doesn't go according to your own convenience or your own expectations, right? Immediately, um, you know, for me, I have, I have a short commute, but I have a commute. I have to drive in to the office. And I am noticing, as some of you who commute perhaps do, that everyone is driving too slow or too fast. You notice this. Why is it? Why is everyone driving too slow or too fast? Because you are the standard by which everyone should drive. If everyone would just drive like you drive, right? Those, the highways would run so much more smoothly. I mean, that's a silly example, but it's just how we have a self-orientation that everyone else is a supporting character in the story of my life. Perhaps like me, you see it in the checkout line at the grocery store. Everyone is there to frustrate your ability to get through the line. You are in a hurry. You are busy. It's your day. They are messing with your day. And what's really frustrating is the people that you run into are under the mistaken impression that it's their day. That somehow you're an impediment to them. Well, you see what happens. We, we do not wake up in um, the fresh awareness of grace. And yet, and yet, we do wake up into a fresh heaping of grace from the Lord who loves us despite our sin. Our minds are given to gospel amnesia. So we have to be reminded of what is of first importance. Secondly, why recover the recovery of the gospel? Because we constantly need reprioritizing. Not only do we need constant reminding, we need constant reprioritizing. Paul delivered this message as of first importance, he says. And it seems clear to me by um, what he goes on to say and what he says elsewhere, that he doesn't mean initial importance, but central importance. Why? Because the expansiveness that he is applying to the good news just in these short words. You received the gospel, he says, verse one. You're standing in the gospel and you are being saved by the gospel. Now, that's not simply a, a good news for conversion, is it? I grew up in a church culture that treated the God. We had the gospel, but we believe that the gospel, or at least um, our methodology was oriented around the idea that the gospel was only for lost people. And once you, quote unquote, get saved, then you move on. And we would sometimes refer to things that are deeper things, deeper teaching, deeper doctrines. And they could be all sorts of things, depending on the season of life of the church or the context. Sometimes deeper things referred to the sort of um, you know, soteriology debates, Calvinism, Arminianism, and all those sorts of things. Sometimes the deeper teachings refer to eschatology and end time speculation and all those sorts of things. But it could be anything except the gospel, which is the deepest subject of all. What Paul is showing us here in just three short clauses is the bigness, the expansive scope, the cosmic territory that the good news of Jesus encompasses. It is not simply the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z. You don't grow beyond your need for the gospel. If Paul's telling the truth, and I believe he is. 
In this one little verse, we relearn that the good news is obviously bigger than we thought it was, in which you stand. So you received it, past tense, in some way, shape, or form, you heard the message of grace. The, you heard the message of Jesus. You repented and you believed. Perhaps someone shared that message with you. Perhaps you heard it in church and you responded to an invitation as I did. Perhaps you saw it on television or someone um, gave you a gospel tract or you just discovered it on your own reading a Bible or looking at the internet or something. You heard the message, you believed, you received the gospel. Paul goes on to say, your present standing before God is not based on your performance after that moment of reception. Your standing before God in this very moment is based on what Christ has done on your behalf. That's good news. That's good news. Because for a long time, I believed that I got in by Jesus, but I stayed in under my own power. And many of us don't believe that theologically, and yet we can imply it or communicate it implicitly in the way that we talk about the gospel. We subtly or, or um, unintentionally communicate to others that, yeah, you know, as Paul says in, in Galatians, you know, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And many of us, in some way, shape, or form, say, yes. I began by the Spirit, but my perfection is, is coming through my performance. And if your performance is the grounds of your assurance, you should always be insecure. And it's not just our present standing, it's our future glorification. So the gospel is the grounds for our justification. It's also the grounds for our ongoing sanctification. And it will be the grounds for our glorification when Christ returns and we see him face to face. We don't get to say, look at all my merit badges. We come with an empty hand of faith even then. I have nothing to offer you, God, to enter your glory. What I have is what Christ has done for me on the cross, Mount Calvary. For this reason, Paul says in Romans chapter one, I'm not ashamed of this message. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In fact, the gospel is the only thing the New Testament calls power. The Holy Spirit working through this newspaper headline is the only thing that changes hearts, that brings dead people to life, that brings them from darkness into light, and that makes found people more Christ-like. Ephesians 3, 7, Paul says the gospel was given to him by God's power. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, he says the gospel is accompanied with power. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, he says the message of the gospel is the power of God. This good news is so powerful. It is so versatile. It is so resilient, in fact, that Paul had no trouble leaning on it for all of his journey, all of his sufferings, all of his persecutions, all of his preaching, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I have resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, Paul, what about deeper teaching? At some point, we need to move beyond this message. Paul says, I'm not moving on from this message. I'm not departing from this message. You can depart from it around me, but I'm not departing from the message of Jesus Christ. Remember, as I was first working through the implications of this, and I, I had no, uh, you know, the cottage industry that has crept up, of which I have uh, benefited greatly around gospel centrality, did not exist when I was first trying to figure out, how do you do this stuff? What does it look like in a church? 
And I had no local models, and I had just planted a church, and I was trying to do this gospel-centered thing. But before that moment, as I was working through sort of the machinations and the methodology and all those sorts of things, I was leading a young adult ministry at an attractional church in Nashville, Tennessee. And we had been assembled. It was essentially like the attractional Avengers, I suppose. This guy assembled all of his favorite people in the church who, you know, creative types and all sorts of things. And I was the teacher. Uh, I was like the guy who could teach, basically. And so they they brought me in, and and I'm just the teacher. But it was very clear from the outset that the teaching was seen as just sort of like one of the features of the ministry, no greater or, you know, than any of the other features. And I remember sitting in this room with these other leaders assembled by a friend of mine, and we were essentially going to find out, like, what are we going to do? What's the worship service going to look like? And I came in with the conviction that everything we do must be centered on the gospel. And I had some ideas, some clear, some pretty murky at the time of what that looked like for preaching, what that looked like for music, all sorts of things. But the other people in the room didn't have those ideas. It was like, you know, an alien had entered their ranks. And it became this open forum of like, hey, this can be anything we want it to be, right? In fact, one fellow even said that. They were talking about having, you know, uh, pottery stations in the middle of the worship service and, you know, um, easels where people could paint if they didn't want to sing and all these sorts of things. Uh, This is in Nashville, by the way. So, um, and one fellow said, like, this could be anything we want it to be, right? And in that moment, if you don't know me personally, you might know I, I don't like conflict. I don't like tension. I want everyone to just to be happy. I don't want anyone, I want everyone to like me. But in that moment, I felt like I had to say, no, it can't be anything we want it to be. I said it a lot more softly than that, but I said, no, it, like, if, if I'm going to be involved and it began to feel to them like a kind of blackmail, like if I'm going to teach, it can't be anything we want it to be. I wasn't going to budge from the conviction that what we did had to revolve around the centrality of the message of grace. And all that we did, in fact, had to somehow adorn the message of grace, not obscure it, not compromise it, not confuse people about it. And many people dropped off the leadership team, but others hung in there and we figured out together. If you devote yourself to the centrality of the gospel, you will confuse and even sometimes lose Christians from your ministry uh, trajectory. Some of you who are pastors visiting, come in just because of the subject or what have you, you've already experienced this. Maybe it's ongoing. There's a constant tension. There's people who they don't seem to get it. And I'm gonna talk about that a little bit, how to shepherd those people well and graciously in the next couple of sessions. But we just know this is a spiritual problem. Our flesh yearns for more. We want something else. Like a dear lady who came to me in the final months of my time at my last pastorate, who began with something that sounded encouraging. He said, Jerry, we know that your thing is the gospel. And I kind of, you know, puffed up. I was like, yeah, my thing's the gospel. It's good that you've picked up on that after six years. And then she said, but sometimes we just need to hear something else. And, and my heart just sunk. If, if you think you're beyond your need for the gospel, what you actually need is a double dose of the gospel. We have to, with laser-like focus, fix our eyes on the gracious Christ. He is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we have to, like Paul, resolve to know nothing except for Christ 
and him crucified. We need constant reprioritizing. Thirdly, why recover the recovery of the gospel? Because we constantly need repenting. We constantly need repenting. Our central problem, your central problem, my central problem, is not a lack of self-esteem. It's not a lack of self-fulfillment. If that's the central problem, we certainly can conduct church like a TED Talk with a Bible verse. If that's the big problem. Our central problem is not those things, and therefore our central solution cannot be a program of self-help or self-actualization, which, by the way, is what law carried out in our own power essentially is. Our central problem is that we have rebelled against a holy God. Our central problem is that we have disobeyed his righteous commands. We've attempted to usurp his sovereign authority. Our central problem is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Why, after all of the ink spilled towards the Corinthian problems, does Paul at this point say, now I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you? Because Paul knows that for every behavior problem, there is a belief problem. We disbelieve our way into sin, and we have to believe our way out. The only antidote that can generate that kind of power, the power to supplant the idolatry that's at the root of every sin, is the power of God's grace in the gospel. If you only pour God's righteous commandments, good commandments that reveal his glory, if you only pour his commandments onto a sin problem, what you can create at best is either condemnation and at worst, self-righteousness. I can defeat this on my own. I can be a holy person myself. But what is Paul reminding them of? I would remind you, not that you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. I would remind you of what? Christ died for our sins. When Luther nailed those 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, the first thesis declared that our whole life is to be one of constant repentance. The Roman church had prioritized law over grace and lost the plot, devolving into a false gospel of works religion and everything that that implies, including the satanic idea that we can manage our sin purely through religious exercises. But Christ comes and calls us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily, a message to both the lost hedonist and to the religious Pharisee. We constantly need repenting. Brothers, those of you who pastor, this is why if your church service is aimed at lost people, giving them four steps to apply Christianity every week is a lost cause and makes no sense. You're giving religious busy work to the unsaved. And what can that possibly do? It creates a kind of moral pagan is what it can do but it's still a Phariseeism, even if it looks cool and modern. Give them the gospel. The gospel's big enough. It's big enough to save the lost and to grow the saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is comparing law and gospel in that chapter. And he says the law is so glorious. It carries so much glory. It reveals the holiness of God. How can that not be glorious? But he says what surpasses it in glory is the gospel. In verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, he said, it's by 
beholding the glory of Jesus, seeing Christ with an unveiled face, that we are transformed from one degree of glory into the same likeness of Christ. How do people become Christ-like? It's by seeing Jesus. The gospel is a reminder that we essentially need not a new religion, but a new heart. And the law cannot give us a new heart. The law can reveal our sinfulness. The law can convict us of our sinfulness. Sometimes it can even exacerbate our sinfulness when we bristle against it, but it cannot save us from our sinfulness. Only the grace of God can do that. A couple of years ago, I was um, privileged to write a Bible study on Paul's letter to the Romans for uh, Crossway Publishers. And the, the series editor for this series of Bible studies, it's called Knowing the Bible, the, the series editor was J.I. Packer, which I, I was really um, astounded by. But I, I pretty much assume that it's kind of a figurehead kind of thing. I mean, he's like 150 years old now. Like how, He endorses every book. How much of this work can he actually be doing, you know? Uh, so his name was the thing. I thought, well, yeah, that's impressive. I like that. But, you know, is he really, is he really reading anything? Um, that was me and, and just making the assumption. Well, after the, you know, the study had come out and, and a, a friend of mine had written the entry on Hebrews and he had Instagrammed one day that um, the publisher had sent him the, his manuscript with J.I. Packer's edits on the manuscript. And at first, I thought, that's such a cool thing. How amazing is that? And then my second thought was, why didn't I get my edits? Like, why didn't he? So I thought, well, maybe he didn't actually work on my manuscript. Maybe somebody else did that. Or my worst thought, because it's just where my brain goes, is it was so terrible. And, <laughs> and it's like just bloody with red ink that, that you know, the publisher was like, We're, let's just not hurt Jared's feelings and let's just put out the good finished copy of this thing. But I worked up the courage. And so I contacted Dane Ortland, who was the editor there. And, I said, hey, you know, I saw Matt got hit, hit this manuscript with, with Packer's marks on it, and I'd love to have mine if, if, if you have that, if, if that, you know, if he worked on mine. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. So he, he overnighted this package to me, and I opened it up there in my office there in communications and stumbling through it, and, and I was relieved that, you know, most of the stuff that he was correcting was little stylistic things, you know. My, I'm, I wasn't a heretic. That was good to discover as I was reading the thing. Um, but, you know, he didn't leave a whole lot of, I mean, it, it wasn't heavily edited, I, I should say. But then I came to one particular portion. And in the final um, version of the Bible study, it comes on page 18. Essentially, it's my notes on Romans chapter 2. And in a section, I'm remarking on Romans chapter 2, verse 4, part of which says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so I had written this as my reflection on that verse. I said, in yet another wonderful affirmation of where the source of power to change is found, Paul reminds us in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Not his law, not his berating, not his exasperation, not his cajoling, his kindness. And I had put a period, end of sentence. Well, Packer added one thin vertical stroke on the end of that sentence, turning my period into an exclamation point. And then he underlined it to show his change. It's not God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's God's kindness. Exclamation point. 
And brothers and sisters, as I read those notes at my desk, I began to weep, and I'll tell you why. Because 15 or 16 years ago, when I was in the midst of a deep depression and felt totally hopeless and totally broken, if you had said to me in those days, you know, one day Jerry Packard was, will edit one of your books, I would have laughed at you out of your cruelty. It would have seemed exceedingly harsh to me that you would say such a thing. But one night in the midst of that helplessness and depression, the Lord reached down and grabbed hold of me and whispered into my ear the words, not that uh, were new to me, not that I had never heard before, but in that moment, at that time, made all the difference in the world. I love you and I approve of you in Christ. And it was like the lights came on for me. And in those days, I had a notebook full of sermon outlines on how to be a better Christian. And none of them solved my problem. I was in a dark hole and the Lord was exceedingly kind to me. And so if you fast forward to that day that I was holding that manuscript in my hand, I thought of all the kindness of God that led me to that point. His kindness despite my sin, despite my failures, despite my weakness, despite my baggage, despite my struggles, despite my doubts, what I had at the end of my rope was kindness, exclamation point, kindness. I didn't need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I needed to repent and believe the gospel. We must center on the gospel because we must always be repenting. Fourthly and finally, why recover the recovery of the gospel? Because we constantly need reforming. We constantly need reforming. Nobody drifts toward the gospel. Right, as we established earlier, we drift away. Our natural mode is not gospel mode. We naturally drift away. Why? Because the gospel makes too little of us and too much of God. Therefore, we have to nail this thesis to the door of our own hearts on a daily basis. Paul says in verse 2, hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The danger in gospel departure is that it is a symptom of unbelief. You know, in, in Galatians 2, when Paul confronts Peter about his hypocrisy right there in the, in the cafeteria <laughs> who he's eating with, there's a lot that Paul could have said. He could have said, you're hurting their feelings. Because, of course, he was, in a, in a way. He could have brought up all the commandments that Peter was breaking or the confusion that he was causing, and he brings up those little things in bits and pieces. But essentially, what was driving Paul was this. Your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. You know, sometimes we're told to move on. And some men have fought long and hard to facilitate this gospel recovery movement. It didn't begin with Colin Hansen's article in Christianity Today. It began with faithful preachers, some well-known, but most of them not, who took up the mantle of the Puritans and the Reformers, calling us back to make manifest in our ministry what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. I only want to lay hold of what laid hold of me. Or four verses later, only let us hold true to what we've already attained. He's not moving on. He's not graduating from the message. 
Sometimes we are told, in fact, that moving on from the gospel is the right next step in the gospel movement. Those arguing that it's now time to focus on all the implications and the entailments. And I do believe the gospel has entailments and implications. The commands are in the Bible to be obeyed. The imperatives are there to be followed. As we cling doggedly to the theology that our fathers fought for and passed down to us in good faith, sometimes these voices from within the church even bring up the spirit of the Reformation as a rationale for moving on from the gospel. Whatever happened to Semper Reformanda? As if always reforming means committing to a kind of a flexible orthodoxy, a malleable gospel, a junk drawer gospel. In a New York Times article in 2011, uh, we find this historical anecdotes tied to the devastating tsunamis in that region around that time. Does this stone tablet has stood on this forested hillside since before they were born, but the villagers have faithfully obeyed the stark warning carved on its weathered face. Though a stone says, do not build your homes below this point. Residents say this injunction from their ancestors kept their tiny village of 11 households safely out of reach of the deadly tsunami last month that wiped out hundreds of miles of Japanese coast and rose to record heights. The wave stopped just 300 feet below the stone. They knew the horrors of tsunami, so they erected that stone to warn us, said Tamashige Kimura, 64, the village leader. Hundreds of so-called tsunami stones. They're more than six centuries old. And they dot the coast of Japan, silent testimony to the past destruction that those lethal waves have frequented upon the earthquake-prone nation. But modern Japan, confident that advanced technology and higher seawalls can protect vulnerable areas, came to forget or ignore those ancient warnings, only to doom themselves to repeat the bitter experience when the recent tsunami struck. The ancestors knew what they were talking about. They had learned the hard way, and they erected markers. Don't build past this point. But every generation brings with it an arrogance of its own. We know better. We're smarter. We're more enlightened. We just have to accommodate more and more people. So we ignore the markers for all sorts of reasons. And so we must be reminded that always reforming does not mean always morphing. It does not mean that the faith is ever-changing, progressing into something better. In many respects, to be always reforming is to always be returning to the gospel, to be continually sloughing off the baggage of add-ons and distractions, cutting out the ever-rising innovations, theological or otherwise. To be always reforming is to keep going back to the ancient markers in the face of constant temptation and taunting from those who would have us play with heterodoxy ever newly. Let us keep contending, keep trusting, keep returning to the ancient marker of the cross, resolving to know nothing but Jesus Christ had been crucified. And so the church that is always reforming is always returning to the gospel, always conforming its message, its ministry, its methodology to the gospel. The church understands that sinners who are one to the gospel are kept by the gospel. And therefore, it's not enough for the gospel to be tucked away back in the faith statement on the website. 
It's not enough to simply have the gospel for special occasion or dished out in small doses as an afterthought to the sermon. An assumed gospel is methodologically a denied gospel. We must stop, of coursing the gospel. Because to do so is to, of course, the glory of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to be gospel assenting, brothers and sisters. The scriptures and the Holy Spirit who breathe them call us to be gospel driven. Hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Let us hold fast, church, because only the gospel will hold. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this miraculous and precious gift. Father, these are things into which angels long to look. And so we pray that you would give us a spirit of repentance about our boredom with your grace, our assumption that your grace is shallow, our assumption that your grace is not fascinating, that it could not preach week to week, much less day to day. Father, give us a spirit of repentance to return to the message that saved us, that we might behold the glory of Christ sanctifies us by his glory, the power of your spirit. We pray these things in his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.